following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Good morning. I'm not excited this morning. We are... We are about to embark on a little journey through the briar patch this morning. Again, this, uh, our text for this morning represents one of the main reasons that we study scripture in the way that we do here on Sunday mornings. Um, one book at a time, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time in order. It would be a whole lot easier for me personally if we just kind of skip around, you know, skip over this section and and preach on a topic that's maybe more relevant for us at this time in history or just easier. Um, something that, you know, would be really helpful. But. The way that we study scripture together here does not allow for us to skip over the parts that we don't like or skip over the parts that are difficult, uh, skip over the parts that aren't culturally relevant. Sorry, that's two quotes. We can't simply gloss over the parts of scripture that we find offensive or find confusing or try to explain them away or just ignore them altogether. We have to deal with them. So if you don't read ahead as a habit in preparing for Sunday morning, you have no clue what I'm talking about right now. And those of you who do, thank you for your prayers. <laughs> hmm. There's no sense in putting it off any longer. So let's read the text and dive in. Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, page 1016 in the Pew Bible. 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having being subjected to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your guidance this morning. As we look at your word, we know these are your words. And they are important for us to understand. I admit, Lord, in my own flesh, I do not understand them. 
And so we need your spirit to speak to us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would guide us in truth, for your word is truth. May you be glorified and may we be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is going to be fun, right? Now you know what I was talking about. If you remember from last week, uh, Peter's focus has been on suffering. He is all of this submission and then uh, kind of morphing into um, submission through suffering. And in fact, suffering remains his focus throughout um, into the next chapter. And Peter started talking about suffering and enduring suffering back way back in chapter two. And he reminded us of the example of Jesus and how he stood up under suffering uh, persecution, even though he was innocent. And at the end of our passage from last week in verse 17, Peter wrote, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, which is a great comfort to me because I have been suffering through this passage uh, all week. And again, in verse 18, he reminds us of Jesus' example for suffering. So let's put that together with verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this, this is wonderful. This is the shortest, simplest, richest summary of the meaning of the cross of Christ. Here it is. If you ever find yourself wondering, what exactly is penal substitutionary atonement? That's it. That's it right there. That's what that means. You can impress your friends, right? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Penal substitutionary atonement. Punishment, substitution, made one with God. Right. Penal punishment, substitutionary. Somebody took the punishment for us. Atonement, making us at one with God, atone at one with God. And there it is. Jesus did it for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Notice that first phrase, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. Once. That's all that was necessary. Once. Not an endless ritual of, of animal sacrifices year after year after year. Neither is it a weekly sacrifice which we take in ourselves through the Eucharist, as the Catholic Church teaches, that's sacrificing Christ over and over and over again. Christ suffered once for sins. That's all that was necessary. The work is complete. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. If anyone ever deserved to be spared suffering, it's him. It's Jesus. He didn't deserve it, but he willingly suffered in our place. 
And there was a purpose. He suffered so that he might bring us to God. Jesus serves as our high priest. Sin is what separates man from God, mankind from God. Every man and woman who's ever lived. Our sin is what separates us from God. But because Jesus willingly suffered and died in our place on the cross, he has made a way for us to be reunited with our heavenly father through faith in him. That's atonement. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Martin Luther said, this is the meaning that Christ by his sufferings was taken from the life, which is flesh and blood as a man on earth, living, walking and standing in flesh and blood. And he is now placed in another life and made alive according to the spirit. He has passed into a spiritual and supernatural life, which includes in itself the whole life, which Christ now has in soul and body so that he has no longer a fleshly, but a spiritual body. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is a ghost. Not at all. But his resurrection body is different from our fleshly bodies. He still ate and drank with the disciples after his resurrection. They could still touch him. He invited Thomas to put his hands in the uh, put his finger in the holes in his hands to reach his hand into his side. He had real flesh and blood, but he could no longer be touched by death. So why does Peter bring that up? He says this to remind the church, to remind us that suffering is not permanent. It's not without purpose. And even if our suffering ends in death for the believer, death is not the end. That's all good news. It might not be for you because you don't ever suffer with anything. So (laughs) suffering is not permanent. It's not without purpose. And even if it ends in your death, your death is not the end of your life. And then it takes a weird turn. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Um, So when I think about uh, what I would like to preach about on any given Sunday, These verses never come to mind. Never. In fact, there are there are few passages of Scripture uh, that have given scholars and preachers a harder time than this one. Uh, I can I can. I understand being uncomfortable about a particular subject matter and not wanting to offend anyone. That's not what this is. This is just. I don't even I don't even know where you know this is tough. So I know that uh, that you all love me, and watching me squirm is bringing you great pleasure. 
So, so let's look at some, uh, some classical interpretations of this text, uh, of these verses. Um, so there are three, um, Alistair Begg shared three, uh, classical interpretations of these verses. The first, um, I'm not saying these are all, uh, they're all right because they all conflict with each other. So, uh, just bear with me here. The first, Classical interpretation is that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the people who died in the flood of Noah. That's that's classical interpretation number one. Second, Jesus in the spirit or the spirit of Christ preached through Noah as he was building the ark. Um, Okay, and third, Jesus descended into hell and proclaimed his victory to the fallen angels who were in prison and in chains. Right. So each one of these interpretations has has its own problems. Every one of them. There's not like, oh, yes. Aha. This clearly it's this one. I mean, out of those three, does any one of those just stand out? Yeah, obviously, that's the one, right? Well, I'm glad it didn't to you, because it certainly didn't to me. In truth, um, these, these classical interpretations reveal some potential problems with our own ideas about what happens when a person dies. The main problem is with our ideas of hell. What comes to your mind, I wonder, when you think of hell? Fire, pitchforks, pointy-tailed, guys with horns. Right? I always think of Sylvester the cat. Right? Remember from Looney Tunes? He died and, uh, you know... There's like the the bulldog is down there and he's Satan and he's like, I don't know. Most of my reality is based on Looney Tunes. So let me ask you another question. What comes to your mind when you think of Hades? What? Separation from God. Are your ideas of hell and Hades the same? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. I know what Daniel's thinking of. He's thinking of Hercules, right? (laughs) Hades, the Greek god with the flaming blue hair, right? Okay. So, I know, right? I mean, the truth of the matter is the Bible represents both of these uh, places, and they are not the same thing. Um. This is where we run into problems. Our, our interpreters don't, or our translators don't always help us because when the Greek uses the word Hades, they write in English the word hell. And they're not the same. That's a problem. Hell is the lake of fire, right? So if you had flames and lava in your mind, okay, you're right. But um, what happens there and who is in there, I guess, is that's that's where we run into issues. Hell is a lake of fire that Satan and his demons are all destined for, 
along with all of those who have rejected Christ. Revelation 20, verse 14, calls this the second death, the lake of fire. Very clearly um, described there. But if hell is the second death, what is the first death? Did you wake up this morning thinking, I can't, this is what we're going to do? The first death is Hades. That's the place of the dead. Some scholars call this the intermediate state. And there's lots of discussions and arguments over the intermediate state and whether one is conscious or unconscious. Uh, Some people call that soul sleep. Um, uh, Some people call it paradise. Some people call it heaven. It's, It's not heaven. Heaven is where God is now where he is preparing a home for us, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns. The old heaven and the old earth will pass away, and we will live in the new Jerusalem, which will come down from heaven and be uh, established on the new earth. Okay? I don't often quote from Revelation, as you well know, Uh, But chapter 20, verses 13 and 14 says, Death and Hades give up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the white throne judgment. This is not the judgment of believers, but for everybody else. Hades is not hell. Hades is not a place of punishment. Hell is a place of destruction. Okay? And the only people that roll around in that fire forever is Satan. Only Satan. Not everybody forever. They go to the lake of fire and are destroyed. Hades is not hell. Hades is also not purgatory. Purgatory is the teaching of the Catholic Church and is not found in Scripture at all, okay? It actually clearly violates the teaching of Scripture that people can somehow be perfected after they die. That's the purpose of the Catholic teaching of purgatory. Once you die, you, have, you can work off your sinfulness over hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And if you do certain things, if you pay certain... Um, Oh, shoot. Indulgences. If you pay indulgences, you can take years off your basically sentence in purgatory. This is a part of the reason why the Reformation happened, is these indulgences. The Catholic Church was charging people to get them out of purgatory. Okay? Works out good if you've got a lot of money to give the church, the Catholic Church anyway. But it's not in Scripture. It's It's... The opposite of what scripture says, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, saved, done. Not you have to be refined now once you go to this place. This is heresy. It's false teaching, plain and simple. So getting back to what Hades is, Jesus referred to Hades when he told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was in a place Jesus called Abraham's bosom, 
while the rich man was in a place of torment and they were separated by a huge chasm. Jesus is describing Hades. Um, So there's a lot to talk about here. There's there's a lot of of things to discuss, but I I just want to hit the highest points here. These three ideas of purgatory, hell and Hades. They're important for us to understand because we have to ask the question, did Jesus descend into hell? No, because there isn't anybody there. Hell is the lake of fire that's reserved for the final judgment, the second death. There isn't anybody there. Jesus descended into Hades to the place of the dead. And he preached to the spirits in prison. That's what Peter wrote. Now, if we use the the most basic strategy for biblical interpretation, our favorite strategy for biblical interpretation, it's just a plain reading of the text. We can clearly see that Peter declares that Jesus Christ preached in Hades to the unbelieving contemporaries of Noah. Nothing more, nothing less. The Bible means what it says. It took Noah, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. This wasn't a Saturday afternoon project. Get the guys together, we're going to bang together a boat. No, this was 120 years. And Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. We'll talk about that in chapter 4. He preached righteousness for 120 years while building the ark. Yet only seven people joined him inside, and even one of them turned away from the Lord. So the real question, my question is, why even bring this up? What, why bring up Noah and the ark? What does, why, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I don't know. But John Calvin had a suggestion. And he said on the phone, he called and said, the sum of what is said is this. You're welcome. The sum of what is said is this, that the world has always been full of unbelievers, but that the godly ought not to be terrified by their vast number. For though Noah was surrounded on every side by the ungodly and had very few as his friends, He was not drawn aside from the right course of his faith. Noah is surrounded by the population of planet Earth. Full of wickedness and debauchery, ungodly behavior and attitudes. And he's building the world's biggest boat. A hundred and twenty years. Christ was alive in the flesh as we were before we came to faith in him, only he without sin. Christ died in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit as we were when we came to faith in him. Christ preached the gospel to those who were lost in the power of the spirit as we ought to. Christ ascended to the right hand of God in heaven and will and we will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom when he returns. So what remains 
is the question of Noah and baptism. I'm sure that's not the only question that you might have. And I'd be happy to talk about this uh, later. This is the place to talk about it, but not the time. No, I wouldn't be happy to talk. I'm willing. Uh, that's different. I'm willing to talk about it later. I can't. Lunch is going to be great today. I'll be eating in my car. So let's get back. Noah and baptism. How how did Noah, the flood, and baptism correspond? There's there's water, um, right? Well, they have to correspond because that's what God's word says, all right? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So how does baptism correspond to the rescue of Noah and his family on the ark? It's more than just water. The flood was a form of baptism, just as Moses and the Israelites went through a form of baptism when they passed through the Red Sea. That's how the Bible represents it. By the baptism of the flood, Noah and his family were transferred from the old world of sin and wickedness and transferred to the new world of righteousness. The baptism of a believer in Jesus is a similar symbol What saved Noah and his family? Faith. Noah built the ark on faith. God said, do it. He did it. It took a really long time. It was a ton of work. And he was harassed by everybody around him the whole time. But by faith, he did not swerve from his goal, from his mission, obedience to God and building this great big boat. In faith, Noah obeyed God and spent 120 years building the ark, and he and his family were saved. They were given new life when the waters receded. By faith in Christ, the church is saved from death and Hades and is raised to new life. We are buried with Christ by faith and raised again to new life in him. That's what baptism symbolizes. But Peter says it's baptism that saves you. Oh, that's tricky. John Calvin wrote, when we speak of sacraments, the only two sacraments of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. When we speak of sacraments, two things are to be considered, the sign and the thing itself. In baptism, the sign is water, but the thing itself 
is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortification of the flesh, the putting to death of the flesh. The thing itself is the washing with the blood of Christ. The sign is the water. So the act of baptism is not what saves us. It is an outward. It is the outward symbol of an inward occurrence through faith. It is, as, Jesus, as Peter puts it, an appeal to God for a good conscience. The only way to have a good conscience before God is to have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism is, baptism is so closely connected to faith in Christ that sign and that symbol are so closely connected that there is no reason that anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ should wait to be baptized. No reason at all. And when I was a kid growing up in the church, in order to get baptized, you had to go through baptism class. And I was like six weekly studies to make sure you're truly a Christian, to make sure you understand what baptism is all about, and to make sure... Um, that you could sign the membership, the membership papers when, when you were all done. Understanding what baptism truly means, wonderful. Understanding what, that you're truly saved uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, wonderful. Are they necessary in order to be baptized? No. Having faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin is all that's necessary. That and water. Baptism is so closely connected that there's no reason anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ should wait to be baptized. So, hell, Noah, baptism, what are our takeaways? What, other than the entertainment of watching me squirm, what are our takeaways? First, Jesus Christ, the one who deserved suffering the least, showed us how to suffer the best. When life gets hard, we must look to his example. Did Jesus cry, woe is me? Did Jesus cry, why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? Did Jesus turn away from God and say, this is all your fault? Did Jesus consider God's punishing me for something I've done wrong? No, he didn't do any of those things. He suffered righteously, and we should look to his example when we suffer. The second thing is that God's word is not a riddle to be solved. It was written so that we can understand it. You ever think about that? You know, people say to you, I, I tried reading the Bible once and I didn't understand any of it. Okay. Try asking God for help next time and try again. The Bible is written so that people will understand it. It's not full of codes and riddles for us to solve, not codes to decipher. If we don't fully understand some of the little things, we can certainly understand and embrace the big things. And the Holy Spirit can give us help to deal with stuff like this. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I, I, I love that. The most succinct definition of the meaning of the Christ, the cross of Christ is given right before the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. 
What's important is that if you believe this, that Christ suffered once for your sins, he is righteous, you are unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And through faith in him, your flesh is put to death and you are made alive in the spirit, filled with his Holy Spirit. And if you believe that, if you count on that as being true, then and you have not been baptized, there's no reason to wait. There's no reason to put it off any longer. Let's fill the tank. If not, we'll go back in the river. Or if you're not here right now, we'll fill it next week. Let's do it. There's no reason to wait. Well, you have to wait about an hour for the tank to fill up. That's all it takes. Anyway, if that's you, just talk to me, one of the elders, and we'll do it. And finally, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ suffered for you, for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, being put to death but made alive in the Spirit. Believe that. Call on him. Accept his death on the cross was for you. And invite him into your life and give him direction of your heart that you too can be saved and you too can get baptized. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to stop talking about it for now. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for your word. And we're thankful that sometimes we have to do a little more work. But we're also grateful that your spirit is our interpreter that you can make the foggy clear and you can help us understand that maybe we're not going to understand everything. But the things that are important for us to understand, you have made so very clear. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone uh, who is within the sound of my voice that has not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, has not accepted that his death on the cross was for them, I pray, Father, even now they would cry out to you in faith, call on your name, ask for your forgiveness, and entrust their lives to you, that they too might be adopted as God's children, having their sins washed away by the blood of Christ. God, we're so grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your spirit that gives us guidance through it. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.